Hello, fellow foodies, and welcome back. This is Dr. Cassandra Quave, and you're listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. Today on the show, we're going to explore just how sweet nature can be. I have on the show a guest um, who is an organic chemist. His name is Dr. Grant Dubois, and he's a research scientist that focuses on non-caloric sweetening technologies. Grant began his professional career with Dynapole Company on sweetener research and then joined Saiba um, for immunoassay fluorescent probe work. He then joined Searle Pharmaceutical Company to look into sweetener research, which led to the development of Neotame. Then he joined the Coca-Cola Company, where he was named the company's first research fellow. This research led to the first zero-calorie frozen beverage, the first sweetener receptor positive allosteric modulators, and um, grass or generally recognized as safe approval of the stevia sweetener Riboticide A. In 2012, Grant joined the stevia sweetener manufacturer Almendra as the CSO. Grant's Almendra research led to breakthrough in formulation technologies, markedly improving the taste of all sweeteners. Concurrently, he served as the VP of research for Crave Cush Crush LLC and developed geminic acid, um, as a dietary supplement for the treatment of obesity and diabetes, which has been commercialized as Sweet Defeat. So as you can see, he's had a long and illustrious career with a lot of expertise in sweeteners. And so I'm really excited about this opportunity to ask him lots of detailed questions. Thanks so much for coming on the show today, Grant. You're an organic chemist and your research is focused on sweeteners. I guess maybe we can start with a little bit of the basics about how sweeteners activate our taste bud receptors and how do they actually send these sweet impulses to our brains? We didn't, we didn't actually understand very much about that until really the last uh, two decades. There was some phenomenal research done, enabled by the Human Genome Project, research that was done by a collaboration between Charles Zucker at the UC San Diego, uh, Nick Reba at the NIH, and they really were the first to clone a sweetener receptor in rodents. And then Charles Zucker, along with Lubert Stryer and Roger Chen, they uh, founded a startup company called uh, Sonomics in the San Diego area to do new things, having, having cloned these receptors. They looked to do high throughput screening, find uh, breakthrough new sweetener technologies. I was at Coca-Cola at the time, and we weren't interested in new non-caloric sweeteners. We had, uh, I had been aware of thousands of non-caloric sweetener molecules that chemists like me had made, but none of them tasted like sugar. Mm. So the idea was, gee, uh, sucrose activates the sweetener receptor, and that's what we really want is the taste of sucrose. So how can we um, simulate the taste of sucrose with lower calories? And the idea came up, well, what if we could find a a tenfold or twentyfold enhancer of sucrose. Well, in medicinal chemistry jargon, enhancers are called positive allosteric modulators. And so we funded research at, uh, at uh, Sonomics to find such enhancers. And we did, or the most efficacious enhancers, enhancers we could find were twofold. So that would only enable us to reduce calories by 50%, which was not enough. I mean, for products like Coke was marketing, we needed to reduce calories by tenfold, twentyfold. That being the case, we started to look at other 
uh, technologies. Sonomics continued to look for better enhancers and they worked on it for about 20 years with some very, very capable people, but they never found enhancers that were more than about twofold. That got us into, at Coca-Cola, looking for um, natural non-caloric sweeteners that tasted more like sugar. And uh, after looking at all the possibilities of natural non-caloric sweeteners, I settled on a stevia sweetener called Rivadia Side A as the one that best met the metrics for commercial viability. What can you tell us about the stevia plant? I have it growing in my garden. It's one of my kind of, yeah, it's one of my kind of just fun garden trick plants. I let people taste it when they come through my, my home garden. And it's always surprising just how intensely sweet it is. So right. how how did research really begin on, on stevia? You know, was this always known as like a sweetener um, in other traditions? Or how did we start working on this particular um, source? Yeah, well, it, it goes back quite a ways. Um, I think the chemical structures of the uh, sweet components in Stevia robotiana uh, were first elucidated in the 1930s by many groups working on it. They worked out the chemical structures, but then um, the first people to really look at commercializing Stevia sweeteners were Japanese groups. And um, sugar is very, very expensive in Japan, and they had, have always had an interest in natural products in Japan. And so they uh, commercialized stevia sweeteners early on, but they didn't taste very good. The early stevia sweeteners didn't taste very good at all. And uh, so a lot of work was done to um, solve that problem. Um, one innovation was at Almendra. Uh, they thought initially that if they could just get one of the stevia sweeteners called Rebodia Side A very pure, that would be the solution to the problem. We would have great taste, but not so. Uh, fairly clean taste, no, no real bitterness or anything like that. But this objectionable temporal characteristic with a little bit of a slow onset of sweetness and then mm -hmm. a long, long lingering aftertaste. That... Yeah, it does have that aftertaste, doesn't it? Yeah. And so um, when I joined uh, Almendra, well, it goes back before that. Because when I was still at Coca-Cola, Coke Marketing wanted to have a natural sweetener. And so after looking at all the possibilities, as I said already, um, the stevia sweetener of body side A looked like the most attractive considering all of the metrics for commercial viability, which include taste quality, safety, um, solubility in water, uh, stability, both hydrolytic stability and light stability, cost, and patentability. It's and interesting because these are all qualities that we look for on the on the pharma side of research. Like in my own work, that's translational. Is are, those are all the exact same factors we look for. Yeah. So really, when you're looking for new food products, in many way ways, it seems like, um, yeah, it's it's very similar to the drug discovery process. Yeah. So so with uh, the stevia sweetener of body side A, when I was at Coca Cola, we started looking for ways to try to formulate your body side A so that it would taste better. Mm. We didn't understand, no one understood in the early 2000s, what caused this slow onset of sweetness and this long lingering aftertaste. And it was about that time that um, I connected with a pharmacologist at Emory Medical School 
His name's Kenneth Miniman, and uh, he helped me understand that this is probably due to nonspecific binding of these sweeteners to sites in the oral cavity. And with that hypothesis that that was the cause, we started looking at ways to formulate it, but we really didn't make that much progress while I was at Coca-Cola. We did find that if you formulated it with erythritol, a natural sweetener you already mentioned, that we could make it much better. But erythritol is expensive. And mm -hmm. if you have enough erythritol in a beverage with Rebaudia A to give a good taste, uh, it was cost prohibitive. So yeah. that's a practical solution. Can you, can you just back up one moment? Because I'm always thinking in my head, I have a lot of students that listen to the show and they may not know what you mean by the term formulation. So when you're talking about formulating a natural product into something that could be deployed as a beverage ingredient, what does that actually entail? Yeah, so you, you really have to understand what your objective is. And in our case, formulation of Verbatia side A and other non-chloric sweeteners was directed toward trying to find a way to get rid of this, uh, to accelerate sweetness onset and to, and to uh, reduce this lingering sweet aftertaste. And so how, how could you do that? Well, we knew we could do it with, with erythritol. And we also found that we could take basically any high osmolarity solution and it would taste much better. So but that didn't, still didn't explain to us in the 2000s uh, how to solve the problem. It really was after I attended a, a, a seminar given by Professor Riddick of MIT, she was working on um, really uh, understanding how to formulate therapeutic drugs so that they would um, have more rapid bioavailability. And she explained that when therapeutic drugs reach the small intestine, what has to happen is they first have to diffuse through a layer of mucus, a mucus hydrogel that covers the entire alimentary canal from the mouth all the way down here. And so, bingo, that was, that was the, big, the big idea. Because then I realized, oh, our whole tongue is covered with uh, a layer of mucus. Um, we humans secrete anywhere between one and two liters of, um, of uh, saliva per day. And a major component of human saliva is uh, a glycoprotein called mucin. The particular one in the mouth is mucin 5B and it coats the tongue. So we've got about a 25 micrometer thick layer of, um, of mucus hydrogel that covers our tongue. And these sweetener molecules have to get through it before they get to the receptor. And sugars being very hydrophilic molecules go right through it like a shot. And they get away from the receptor quickly too. They diffuse away quickly. But these amphipathic molecules like side A and even aspartame and other uh, non-chloric sweeteners, they get hung up in trying to diffuse through this hydrogel they bind to every hydrophobic site as they go through and eventually they get there, but they get there slower. And then okay. when they come off the receptor, they have to diffuse away through this hydrogel again and they get hung up and they, and they come back and activate the receptor over and over and over and over. And that <laughs> creates this lingering aftertaste. So 
that was our new understanding based on Professor Ribick's work. And then the question was, well, how do you solve the problem? Well, it turns out that when you still have these, uh, the mucus still in, our, in your salivary gland cells, the um, mucin glycoproteins are bound to calcium and maintained in a very compact form, very compact. But then once they uh, leave the salivary gland cells and uh, enter your, your mouth, they form this, they expand tremendously and form this thick hydrogel covering your tongue. And uh, uh, so given that that's what, what is happening, we understood that, oh, calcium ion binds to the mucous hydrogel and makes it smaller. So it didn't take a, a genius to think that, gee, wonder what would happen if we formulated any of these sweeteners with uh, a calcium salt. Wow. And so, so that was Eureka moment. That, that's huge. That's huge. And so when you say that you're formulating, you're not actually changing the physical structure of the chemical ribodeoside A. Instead, you're adding additional molecules to this mixture that's exactly. then being delivered. Is that right? Okay. Exactly. And uh, so, so we did the obvious experiment, uh, formulated ribodeoside A uh, solution in a, a buffer system with uh, calcium chloride. Mm -hmm. it worked, but the problem was we had to use such high levels of calcium chloride that we also got salty, bitter, and astringent off-taste. I see. Okay. And then, um, well, looking at the periodic table, uh, there's another um, mineral right, right next to calcium, that's magnesium, which is also physiologically important. We mm -hmm. want to see what would happen if we used a mixture of, of magnesium salt and a calcium salt. And that was the big uh, discovery. Uh, we found that a mixture of a magnesium chloride and uh, calcium chloride, uh, we were able to use much lower concentrations and now not, not get any off taste from the salts. And it would apparently create pores or either it would cause the mucous hydrogel to shrink so that uh, the sweetener molecules could get to the receptor quickly and get away from the receptor quickly. Or maybe it was creating pores. We don't really know. We haven't done the biochemical studies, although that's something that uh, is underway now. That's great. So for the average person, if they are, for example, opening up a packet of stevia to sweeten their, their beverage, um, we, have, we have the molecules or the molecule derived, ribodeoside derived from the stevia plant. So it's not like a plant extract, it's a single molecule. And then you have this calcium and magnesium mix. Are there any other kind of fillers or substrates in that mixture? How does that all come together? Because I know that, that ribodeoside is a very, um, it's very potent, right? As a sweetener. So you have to really dilute the actual amount of the compound in a sugar packet. It's not quite the same as just putting a packet of white sugar. Maybe yeah. you can explain that a little so, more. Yeah. yeah, sure. If you go to the grocery store and go to the section of the grocery store where sugar is on the shelf and, and mm -hmm. all the sweeteners, you'll see all the choices. You'll see the pink packets, which are sweet and low saccharin type products. You'll see the blue packets, which are aspartame. You'll see the yellow packets, which are, um, which are sucralose. And then you'll see the green packets. Most of them are green anyway which are various stevia sweetener packets. And most of the stevia sweeteners that 
you have there, and you might have five or six choices of different stevia tabletop sweeteners. Most of them are formulated with maltodextrin or dextrose, and they really don't taste very good. Mm -hmm. One that does taste very good, in fact, I think the only one that tastes very good is uh, one that goes by the brand name of Truvia. Mm -hmm. It was marketed by, is marketed by Cargill, and uh, it is a blend of uh, Robotiocide A and um, erythritol. And erythritol, as I said before, like many osmotically active materials, seems to have similar effects as the mineral salts in that it, I think it causes the mucus hydrogel to shrink and uh, so the sweetener can get to the receptor and away from the receptor quickly and it, it just works. I so Truvia is the only one that I really recommend because it tastes pretty good. Yeah. Well, and what about these other sweeteners? Um, you know, why did we not just stop at aspartame? Like, wh why, why did we keep looking for other sweeteners? Are there downsides to these other sweeteners in terms of flavor or health value? So there are like six non-chloric sweeteners on the market. Nat I mean, artificial, so-called artificial non-chloric mm -hmm. sweeteners market in the world today, and they are saccharin, cyclamate. Saccharin was commercialized by Monsanto as its first product, actually, in 1905. Hmm. And, uh, long, and it was the only one for a long time. And then uh, cyclamate was discovered at the University of Illinois in 1937, I, I believe, and was commercialized. And that enabled the first products, which were saccharin uh, cyclamate blend products, which were on the market in the 60s until uh, FDA banned cyclamate for a decision that was not a good decision, but they did. Aspartame came along in 1981, and is, in, in my opinion, as somebody that's been in this field for 50 years as of now, uh, aspartame is one, is, is the um, non-chloric sweetener, the synthetic non-chloric sweetener that I think is probably the most safe instead mm -hmm in spite of everything one may read on the internet. And that's because it's just broken down in the gut to the natural amino acids, aspartic acid, phenylalanine, and a trace mm -hmm. of them. So that's aspartame. Then along came uh, acesulfam K, uh, discovered and developed by Herxt Pharmaceutical in Germany. And then came sucralose, which was developed, discovered at Tate and Lyle and developed by J and J, um, and since then we've had Neotame come along, which came out of the NutraSweet company, and Adventame, which came out of Ajinomoto in Japan. So all of these sweeteners are there; they're all looking for a piece of the action, but none of them replicate sugar taste very well because they all have this uh, lingering sweet aftertaste. Yeah. So do all of those share that kind of? barrier of trying to get through that hydro that hydrogel on the tongue is that the main the main challenge across the and, board absolutely. yeah and so our uh, um, mineral salt compositions that uh, we reported on in in our june journal of agricultural and food chemistry paper um, mm -hmm. it it works with all of them to eliminate the aftertaste and the irony the irony or a serendipitous effect which we weren't surprised we weren't expecting at all is when we first made these formulations of a mixture of magnesium salt and calcium salt, and later we added the potassium salt. When we first looked at these, all of a sudden there was this tremendous sugar-like mouthfeel. 
Oh, mouthfeel is important. This is one of the challenges with uh, these artificial sweeteners. Yeah. Because even with uh, sweeteners like aspartame, which have a very clean taste, you don't have any mouth like dirt. And so uh, it turns out there was some work done by Ajinomoto in the, uh, oh, about 10 years ago. And they discovered that the calcium sensing receptor, which is physiologically important in many parts of the body, um, is also expressed by a subset of taste bud cells. And they reported that activation of the calcium sensing receptor on taste bud cells leads to a taste which they referred to as kokumi taste, a mm. Japanese word which they translated as mouthfulness. And so we propose that our uh, mixtures of mineral salts, which are a mixture of a calcium salt and a magnesium salt, magnesium also being a known agonist, at the calcium sensing receptor, we propose that these are activating a taste bud cell uh, calcium sensing receptor, giving this pleasing mouthfeel. So, Incredible. Yeah. So it was, it was what, what's next for, so tell us a little bit more about, about the paper. Maybe we can dive a little bit deeper into how you, how you formulate this mixture and then how do you test its efficacy? Because are these being tested, for example, in cell models or in, animal models or is it, does it go straight to human testing? Like how do we even detect sweetness in a laboratory setting? Um, yeah. Very good question. And uh, this is predominantly done by uh, human taste panel testing. Mm -hmm. So what's done, and we have an expert uh, panel, the technique is called descriptive analysis and the panelists are trained to report, to taste a, a solution and then report on the intensities they perceive of sweetness, bitterness, um, sourness, uh, saltiness, um, sweetness linger, and mouthfeel. Mm -hmm. And so they taste the sample and they rate all of these taste attributes on a zero to 15 scale. Um, and of course, since we're trying to eliminate sweetness linger, uh, that's the, one of the most important attributes we look at, as well as the mouthfeel intensity. And um, um, I was involved in um, some work while I was still at Coke. We were trying to develop a, a non-taste panel method for quantitating some of these things. And uh, I was, well, I'm a co-author on a paper that was done by some people, well, a professor who's jointly at Georgia Tech and at, uh, at Emory. Um, and um, he was using an fMRI technique where students are used to um, uh, get into an fMRI machine. They're doing functional magnetic resonance imaging uh, to look at excitation of uh, neurons in the, in the brain. And uh, you're able to actually see that uh, sucrose sweetness comes on quicker than aspartame sweetness. Interesting. So, so it can be done by fMRI, but that's a very sophisticated uh, and expensive yeah. equipment to be doing a lot of routine See, work. Those things. Yeah, I mean, one of the assets that we have in my research group, we've done a little bit of collaboration with a, with a company on looking for novel sweeteners, but the challenge is really having a high throughput assay. Um, it's my understanding it's kind of, there's maybe one company that has a kind of cell-based assay, but there are patents around that and it's hard to, you can't really roll that out to other places for testing. Um, That's right. And the first yeah. com first company to develop a cell-based assay uh, for 
with the sweetener receptor was Sonomics in uh, the San Diego area. Mm -hmm. And we funded, at Coke, we funded that work for about uh, eight years. After that, uh, Pepsi decided, Coke decided that this wasn't going anywhere. We weren't going to find positive allosteric modulators or in other words, enhancers that mm -hmm. were twofold enhancers. And if we did, there were still gonna be synthetic compounds. And uh, we decided this was not going to uh, advance what Coke was trying to do, which was more in the natural world. And we wanted tenfold enhancers. Yeah. Pepsi funded, Pepsi funded uh, Sonomics for about 10 to 12 years after Coke exited. And they didn't find anything any better than we had really. Okay. Yeah, it's challenging, I can imagine, to find these um, very, they have to fulfill so many unique criteria of cost, criteria at the, at the chemical and like biochemical level um, as well. Well, I have a question about another natural sweetener. It's a bit unusual, but I'm, I'm guessing that you've probably heard of this. It's a molecule called miraculin, or it's a you know, coming from um, Sincipulum, I think it's Dulcificum, it's the miracle fruit. And people use this to flavor trip with, right? So you take this berry, you put it into your mouth, let it roll in the tongue. And then if you eat a very high acidity food right after, it makes that food taste intensely sweet. I do this in my class with um, the fruit and then we have like lemon wedges and they get to taste that difference. Um, what about something like that? Is that, has commercialization of that ever been explored or is it kind of because it's a two-step process, there's just too many barriers because you have to pair it with a highly acidic um, ingredient? Yeah, miraculin is a very interesting material. And uh, actually there was a company in the Boston area in the 1960s, late 60s, early 70s, mm -hmm. Miralin Corporation that tried to commercialize it. And and they put it out in the market, but the FDA shut it down because they wanted to see toxicology studies before uh, they allowed them to sell it. And so they went out of business. But there's, but Miraculin has been around for a long time. You can buy it from, oh, there's a company, I can't remember their name right now, but there is a company that you can, you can order it from over the internet. And, uh, and it's a very interesting effect. You're right. It has no taste itself really but then if you taste anything sour after it it takes taste remarkably sweet mm -hmm. a very pleasant sweetness as well uh, i remember <laughs> we had a party at uh, our house uh, oh geez 30 40 years ago and i had some Marilyn and people were drinking wine and drinking beer and things like that which of course are somewhat low ph and mm -hmm. so i invited them to uh, taste a little bit of uh, miraculin and then taste a lemon wedge to perceive yeah. remarkable effect and uh, everybody thought it was really cool yeah. and uh, but then they went back to uh, their bottle of beer or their <laughs> glass of wine and the wine and beer tasted sweet for about an hour <laughs> so, so long-lasting effect yeah is, is an interesting material but no one's found a practical way to yeah foods and beverages at this point that's great. Well, when you when you think about, you know, there's been a lot of interest, scientific interest, a lot of commercial interest in these, you know, non-caloric sweeteners now for, it sounds like, you know, for really almost a century, if you're going back to the early 1900s, what drives this interest in your experience? Is it really, you know, tied to health value or 
kind of what is it about these non-caloric sweeteners that is so heavily desired in the marketplace? Yeah, I think it is a health issue. Uh, as you may know, um, you're located right next to the CDC and looking at the CDC website, the latest data I saw was that 41.9% of Americans are obese, at least yeah. in 2020. And a very significant percentage of them are, are struggling with type 2 diabetes. <clears throat> so um, Americans are consuming, and not just Americans, but worldwide, we're consuming way too much sugar, high fructose corn syrup, and, and other caloric sweeteners like that. But we have an insatiable uh, liking for sweet tasting foods. And so how to how to uh, produce them without introducing all of these calories from uh, sugar or its equivalents? Well, non-caloric sweeteners have been the answer ever since Monsanto commercialized uh, saccharin in 1905. And uh, of course, they've been mainly found in uh, non-caloric beverages. Uh, but increasingly, I think we're going to find that they're used in They'll be used in other foods, taking the sugar out and replacing the sugar with uh, with uh, non-caloric sweeteners. And people are very interested in natural. And uh, we've done some preliminary work. Well, most of our early work with side A has been in beverages because that's mm -hmm. the big opportunity right now. But we've also done work in sugar-free baked goods, sugar-free frozen desserts, and so forth. And we found that uh, in preliminary experiments, we can make a cake or cookies with side A and our mineral salt taste modulators. And instead of sugar as, as a bulking material, we'll use maltitol, mm -hmm. which doesn't provide much of a glycemic effect. And uh, we can get cookies and baked goods and, and ice cream-like products that uh, are actually preferred to the products made with sugar. It tastes really good. And so I think this will be a big growth area in the future, enabled by these mineral salt taste modulators. Yeah. Well, I mean, I wonder also when, when we think about the American diet, you know, I think most people understand that drinking a lot of sweetened beverages, that eating lots of ice cream and desserts is, is going to not be great for your health. But I think one area where many people miss the miss the kind of the ingredient list is when we go into other areas of the supermarket, for example, um, even on our salad dressings, we have high fructose corn syrup. We have high fructose corn syrup in all of our sauces, barbecue sauce, ketchup, mustard. Um, it's it's pervasive even in baby food. So we have these, these sweeteners that are just kind of embedded into so many of our processed food products. Um, and you may not even think of it at the moment that you're eating something that could be potentially unhealthy for you. I think it's easier to recognize, okay, yes, I should not have this extra slice of cake or this extra bowl of ice cream because maybe that's that's not going to be great for me. People don't always think about that before they they put their barbecue sauce on their chicken or Right. right. Or even the canned tomato sauce, the, the pre-made tomato sauces for marinara sauce is also loaded with this. So right. I guess my question is, do you think that there's a place for, you know, there is this evolutionary drive for sweeteners. Do you think that there's a place for um, 
non-caloric sweeteners in other middle aisle products beyond desserts, beyond beverages. And um, yeah, I guess, where is that going in terms of commercialization and, and, and research right now? Yeah, I think, I think there is a big opportunity. And I think uh, that these mineral salt taste modulators that we've been working with, they will mm-hmm. make any of the non-caloric sweeteners, whether they be synthetic or natural, um, they'll make any of them taste better. If you tried to oh, put uh, Robotia side A just as it is into a ketchup or a barbecue sauce, it, it wouldn't taste very good. It would give you yeah. this lingering aftertaste. And, mm-hmm. But in the presence of the mineral salts, I believe that uh, we will have uh, products that taste very similar to sugar and without the glycemic load uh, introduced by sugar or high fructose corn syrups. That's great. So earlier you mentioned with um, some of the challenges that folks face as they were trying to roll out products were toxicology tests. So for any new formulation, even for mineral salts, is there is there a barrier to commercialization that you have to go through basically? It sounds almost like what you would do for preclinical investigational new drug application if I were going to develop a, you know, a, a drug to be tested in the clinic. Is it, is it similar to that? Like you need to have like animal toxicology results or how, how do these get rolled out to the next stage of development? Sure. Good question. Well, um, if you come up with a new molecule like neotame was or adventame was, mm-hmm. those molecules have to go through all of the toxicology studies that are laid out in a, in a document published by the FDA called, generally referred to as the Red Book. And these toxicology studies are very similar to what would be required for development of a new drug. Uh, the only difference, I think, is that uh, clinical studies are not really required. It's, it's basically all animal studies. Okay. Very expensive. It's very expensive. Not as expensive as a new drug, but... Uh, uh, I did work at the NutraSweet company and uh, a product that came out of that was Neotame mm-hmm. and uh, followed up with one of my toxicologist friends there who said their best estimate as to the total cost of uh, doing all the toxicology studies and related studies on Neotame was about $83 million. Wow. So uh, significant amount of money, but not the billion dollar type money that new to get any drug through. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, there's another pathway to take a molecule to regulatory approval, and that's the grass process, generally regarded as safe process. And that's the process that we took to get side A uh, allowed for use in the United States by the FDA. And we still had, had to uh, prove that your body is side A, even though it's a natural product, and even though the indigenous people of Paraguay have been eating this material for thousands of years, probably, uh, we still had to do some toxicology studies. Mm-hmm. And in the case, uh, my best estimate was about $12 million because we didn't have to do a lifetime, we didn't have to do lifetime feeding studies because there was a Japanese company that had done a high quality uh, um, long-term feeding studies in rats. So we didn't have to do that. And uh, so it was less expensive. And now um, many companies are using this grass process 
to commercialize uh, and get regulatory approval for new sweeteners like monk fruit and there are protein sweeteners like brazine mm -hmm. and uh, these are all being introduced to the market via the grass process. Fascinating. Yeah. And so you've also had some experience with the dietary supplement approval pathways, or I don't know if there really is an approval pathway, but there is a dietary supplement market. Um, what can you share with us about that work and how does that compare to your work in sweeteners? Yeah. So the only experience I've had with that was with uh, the company that I worked for, for a couple of years in the early uh, uh, 2013, 2014 timeframe. And uh, they were interested in developing something that would, you could take a pill and it would block your sweet taste for an extended period of time. And it's long been known that uh, genomic acid, a material uh, produced in this plant that's indigenous to India predominantly, uh, would do that. And uh, so we did develop uh, that material, a genomic acid, a purified genomic acid material as a dietary supplement. And it was introduced into the market and uh, I guess it's being found useful for some people in, in losing weight because the idea is after a meal, if you have a, if you're fighting a temptation to, uh, to choose a dessert, you could just take one of these tablets and it would make your ice cream taste like cold mush or it would make <laughs> it taste like nothing. That's incredible. So, okay. So it makes you basically helps to stop those cravings for sweet things because those sweet things now taste disgusting. <laughs> exactly. Taste yeah. That's great. That's, that's really, yeah. I like that, but you're right. It does come back to a traditional use of that medicinal plant that's known to have those effects on the palate. That's fascinating. I mean, there's a lot happening right now in, in the space for weight loss with, for example, with the semaglutide drugs and, you know, gastric, you know, delayed gastric emptying as a strategy also for weight loss. I think right. for many listeners, it's probably very confusing what all these different things, you know, are doing to our bodies because it's, you know, uh, it's very pretty complex pharmacology. And even the scientists, as scientists, we don't fully understand all the implications of semaglutide drugs. Um, right. Yeah. Um, but I think it's, it's really interesting to see how how organic chemistry can play such an important role in the development of new of new food products and food products that can be tied to health and that helping redu reduce you know consumption of of otherwise foods that could be harmful yeah i think i think um you're absolutely right um it helps to have a chemistry point of view but still it's critical to have a understanding of the biology of the system at least as much as it's possible to understand it um, I think, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, in October of 1973, I started my first job with uh, a company called Dynapol in uh, Palo Alto, California. And, uh, and we quickly realized that we have to solve this sweetness linker problem if we're going to have a non-caloric sweetener system that's, that's going to taste good. And we tried all kinds of crazy things that were only enabled by the limited understanding that a an organic chemist may have. Yeah. And it wasn't until, wasn't until the breakthrough in understanding the the uh, biological mechanism of sweet taste and uh, the work on mucus by the Rivik laboratory that uh, it, it 
became possible to solve the problem. I have to tell you a funny story about uh, the early work. I mean, Dynapol is an acronym for dynamic polymer. And the idea was to come up with food additives that would be safe because they would be non-absorbable through the GI tract. Mm. And so we were trying to make sweetener molecules that were high molecular weight so that they would be non-absorbable. And we did that. We came up with a compound that uh, was essentially non-absorbable and it was sweet. The problem was when you tasted this material, there was zero sweetness for about five minutes. And then the sweetness started to build and build and build. And I couldn't rinse it out. You oh, no. <laughs> it built continuously for about 30 minutes or so. And then it took about two hours for the lingering sweetness to go away. And so and then we realized that, uh, no, this was not a commercially acceptable yeah. strategy. We needed to find a, a way to come up with something that was safe, but also that tasted like sugar and not yeah. have tremendous uh, uh, lingering sweet aftertaste. So based on your years of experience, if you were to, if you were to list the parameters of a dream molecule, a dream, you know, non-caloric sweetener, what would those parameters be? Well, taste quality has got to be there. If you don't have quality, you're not going to sell it more than once. Um, Then you've got to have absolute safety. Uh, so that the regulatory agency will allow you to put it on the market. You've got to have uh, solubility, good solubility in water so that it, uh, uh, you can make uh, adequately sweetened beverages with it. You've got to have hydrolytic stability so that it can stay on the shelf for a few months. You've got to have photochemical stability. Um, one natural sweetener that uh, did not is... Uh, a uh, natural sweetener that comes from a plant that comes from South Africa. It's called monotin. And monotin is a tryptophan, substituted tryptophan type compound. And if you formulate it into a beverage and expose it to sunlight, it completely breaks down within oh. a year or so. And the worst part is it produced a horrendous malodor. So oh, you, have, no. you have to have light stability. You yeah. have to have would cost also to address your market needs. And if you're going to spend all this money to commercially develop it, you have to have a way to get a patent on it so that you have some exclusivity for a few years. Yeah, to recoup the cost. So that's the common method that, that we focus on. Fabulous. Well, this has been fascinating, Grant. I think we're about out of time. Um, thank you for sharing your knowledge of this space. I learned a tremendous amount. I, I didn't realize for example, how long research has been ongoing in this space on non-caloric um, sweeteners. I mean, you know, over a century now, that's exciting. Right. And um, I look forward to seeing where things go in the future as we gain even deeper understandings of the taste receptors. Very good. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you very much. Okay. All right, foodies, you've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. I want to um, give a big shout out of thanks to our producers of the show, to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth. I also want to let you know you can find this and other um, episodes on the show at our YouTube channel at Teach Ethnobotany. You can um, get a link to that and links to merch and all of our other episodes at the foodiepharmacology.com website. 
I'd love to hear from you. If you've got ideas on future shows or guests that you're dying for me to speak with, shoot me a message. You can reach me at um, through my social media sites. That's Foodie Pharma on Instagram or on Twitter or on threads. We're everywhere now. <laughs> so thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there and I'll see you next time.